a Lifetime original podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. This episode covers topics that include murder and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's June 24, 2002, in West Columbia, South Carolina. 15-year-old Kara Robinson arrives at her friend Heather's house. Heather's just gotten her driver's license, and she's about to embark on her first big drive without supervision. She and Kara are going to go to her family's lake house for the weekend. But before they can leave, Heather's mom tells them they have to water the flowers in the front yard. So while Heather goes inside to shower, Kara offers to help and grabs the hose and starts watering. As she does, she spots a green Trans Am leaving the neighborhood. She notices it because it's just like the Trans Am one of her family members has. But as she's finishing with the flowers, the Trans Am turns back into the neighborhood and pulls into her friend's driveway. A middle-aged man steps out of the car. He's wearing jeans, a button-up shirt, and a baseball cap. An average guy. He tells Kara that he's selling magazines, which would be a weird thing to do now, but wasn't unusual in 2002. And this man asks Kara if her parents are home. Now, Kara knows not to talk to strangers, especially not to tell them if she's home alone. So she deflects. It's her friend's house, not hers. But the man asks... Well, are your friend's parents home? Something about this guy puts her guard down. She replies, no, they're not home. He asks if he can leave the magazines with her. She says yes, and he approaches. He leans in, magazines in hand. And suddenly, her blink goes off. But it's too late. She can feel the metal against the side of her neck. She realizes it's a gun. He tells her, you're going to come with me. And knowing she doesn't have a choice, she obeys. When Heather gets out of the shower and comes to the front yard to get Kara, all that's left is her shoes and her purse. Just like that, Kara Robinson is gone. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. 
And the first thing she can memorize is the serial number that's inside this plastic bin. So like a mantra, she's just repeating it in her head over and over again until she knows it. I'm just stunned that she has the wherewithal to even be thinking this way right now. Remarkable. I mean, I feel like her adrenaline is just going so crazy and she's just like clinging to any sort of method of survival. And so while she's in the car, the Trans Am starts to move and she's feeling each turn. You know, it's like every bump in the road, every left, every stop, everything. She's just like creating this mental map so she knows where she's going. She can also hear him listening to classic rock radio. Um, She recognizes that he's smoking Marlboro Reds in the front seat. It's like Every detail, she is just committing to memory, thinking, this is what's going to save my life. This is what's going to save my life. She feels the car ramp onto the interstate, and now she's really got to focus hard on this journey. So she's trying to count the time. Again, by counting bumps in the road, anything that's going to give her a clue as to which direction they're going and how long they're headed in that direction. She's memorizing all of it. After a while, this car slows to a stop, and she hears him crack the lid of the plastic bin she's inside of. He handcuffs her wrists, he ties up her feet, and puts a gag in her mouth, and then tells her, scream as loud as you can. She does so, and he says, good. Clearly just testing if the gag works. So he puts the lid back on with her inside it. He gets back in the car and they drive for just a few more minutes. She feels the car stop. She feels him put it into park, turn off the ignition, walk around the side of the car and grab the bin that she is in. He picks it up. He puts it on the ground. He starts to drag it. She can feel based on how the sound is and the vibrations of the floor that he's dragging her over concrete. He crosses the threshold and she is clearly taken inside somewhere and the bin has stopped moving. This stranger pulls the lid off the top and she's now let out of this bin and he takes the gag out of her mouth telling her she has to promise first not to scream. She agrees, and he does so, and then this is the first time Kara can really look around, and she's noticing where she is. She's in an apartment, in a living room. There's a pretty distinct zoo-like smell, and she looks around and notices a wall of animal cages with all different kinds of pets. There's a guinea pig, a lizard, fish, a bird. This guy seems like he's no stranger to putting things in captivity. This guy seems like he doesn't have a lot of friends, in my opinion. He then leads her to the bedroom and lays down the ground rules of her capture. First of all, he wants to remind her that he has a gun and it's always handy. Second, she has to do anything and everything he asks of her or else there's going to be consequences. Third, I'm so sorry to report, she has to call him daddy. That is such a power play. It's just vile. Certainly once he gets to that third rule, Kara knows for certain what is about to happen. And she's also about to be faced with a decision that will decide her fate. So this man starts to then ask Kara about her life. He knows nothing about her. He asks her if she has a boyfriend, who her parents are, who her friends are. And he asks her if she thinks they'll miss her. 
It's like, is he trying to make her feel alone, abandoned, or vulnerable? Or is he just curious about this girl he just kidnapped? Or is this like all a part of his MO? And he tells her to lie on the bed and she knows what's about to happen and she steals herself and he assaults her. Kara is just 15 years old. What she decides to do during this assault is look around. She sees his gun on the nightstand, and it is within her reach. In this moment, she is faced with a huge decision. Should she submit to what's happening right now, or should she try to get that gun? Should she fight? And she has to do this very, very quick risk calculation. Grab this gun and try to escape. Oh, should I? She knows that that isn't the most likely outcome if she goes for the gun. He'll probably overpower her before she can save herself, and then what's going to happen? At worst, he'll kill her right then and there, and at best, he's going to never trust her. She's going to ruin the only future opportunity she might have to escape. If she grabs that gun, there is nothing she's going to be able to do to convince him that she's not a threat. So at that moment, she decides, no, she's not going to grab the gun. She's not going to use this opportunity to try to attack her attacker. She has to just stick to her plan where she just needs to gather information. She wants to wait until his guard is down, and then she can take that opportunity to make her escape. This becomes her mantra. They shouldn't have called it Sophie's choice. They should have called it Kara's choice, because that is crazy. She had to make that call. Well, it just shows, like, her adrenaline is pumping. She's already in survival mode from the moment he takes her with this memorize, memorize, memorize mantra. And now she's thinking, what is my best chance of survival? And she realizes she has to gain her abductor's trust. And that means putting all of his concerns at ease, appeasing him wherever she can, and ultimately making him complacent. After the assault, he commands her to take a shower. And any moment she can be away from this guy is a gift. So she steps into the bathroom and takes a look around, and she sees a brush that has long red hairs in it. She sees a bottle of hairspray, and she sees feminine hygiene products. And at this point, she has this moment where she's like, huh, this guy doesn't live by himself. A woman lives here. Once she gets out of the shower, she and this man have a conversation. And rather than show him her fear, Kara instead just tries to be really friendly. She asks him questions like they're just two people getting to know each other, and she finds out that he was in the military. And that's not much to go off of, but it could help her later on. And so she's just filing anything he says away. The goal right now is convince this man that we can get along so that there's more of a possibility that his guard will come down. Now it's around dinner time, and Kara's abductor tells her that she has to eat. But she's not hungry, and he kind of bristles at that because could that be seen as her disobeying him? She turns the conversation. She asks him if there's anything she can do for him, 
further ingratiating herself into his care. She wants to be as agreeable as possible. So she ends up sweeping his kitchen while he makes dinner. And she even uses that opportunity to get closer to his fridge where she can see a magnet from a dentist's office. And she memorizes the name of the dentist, the address, the phone number, because she doesn't know her abductor's name. So if she escapes, the information she can gather from this magnet will help the police locate this guy. As this day of horrors turns tonight, Kara's captor decides that, you know what the two of them should do together? Watch the news. Would love to see if they're on it, he thinks. See if anybody's looking for Kara. Like, it's just all some game to him. Now, They're not on the news. Kara doesn't know this, but the police don't even think she's been abducted. They think that she's a runaway, even though her parents have been very clear and have insisted that she has been abducted. Listen, the police have gotten this all wrong. All wrong. Because as soon as Heather discovered Kara was missing, she calls her mom, who then calls the police, who then calls Kara's mom, who gets over there as soon as possible. And they know something is really, really wrong horribly wrong. They know Kara. Kara wouldn't just disappear like this. And so when the police arrive, they're convinced that it's just another teenage runway because you know what? Stranger abductions are so rare. There's no way this is what's happening. But you know what? It's rare, but they happen. So they're convincing the family that Kara will just show up at the end of the weekend. They see this all the time. Police then talk to the neighbors who say that they saw Kara get into a green Trans Am and that there didn't seem to be a struggle. Really? No red flags are raised as to an abduction? But the police, they're not listening to the family. They're not paying attention to the evidence. And they're deciding that the best course is just to wait it out and sit on their hands. And by deciding that, they're leaving everything in the victim's hands. In the hands of this 15-year-old girl. So when the missing person's report is filed, when the family reports her missing, it doesn't go to a potential kidnapping or, you know, a problem or an Amber Alert of sorts, right? It goes under runaways, which is a separate department, and it's neglected. So there's no media attention. There's no search for Kara in the hours after her disappearance, which is so troubling also for her family because they just have to sit and wait They just sit and wait because the police don't give them any other option to find Kara. So while Kara is watching the news with her captor, she doesn't see a report of herself on the news. But she knows that she is loved. She knows that she is missed. She knows that her family and friends are so worried about her. And she knows they're looking for her. But deep down, she knows she's going to have to save herself. Later that night, her abductor tells her to get back in that damn bin and keep quiet. And uh, Kara must be wondering if she's going to be transported again, which is so scary. But, you know, she doesn't exactly have a choice. So she gets back in and he puts the gag on her again and shuts the lid. And she can hear him talking on the phone with someone on the other line. And maybe it's the woman with the red hair She doesn't know, but she finds herself in this bin again. She is gagged. She is curled up. She is in darkness. And she finds that she can't breathe. And so she starts to panic. It feels like everything that she's been going through up until this point is just at a fever pitch. And she starts sobbing. 
and she's gasping for air through the gag and she's in darkness in the fetal position covered in a box and she just can't catch her breath and she's it feels like she's hyperventilating in this moment yeah but she's making a lot of noise you know so he does come back in the room and he's pissed he rips off the lid and asks why she's making this racket why is she disobeying him and Kara tells him I'm suffocating in here so he says I will leave the lid off the box if you do not make any more noise and she agrees so He finishes the call with the person in the other room, and then he takes Kara out of the bin, and he brings her back to his bedroom, and he assaults her again. Now, during her time in captivity, it is not just physical assault, but it is also psychological. He forces her to watch pornography. He asks her to do things that she doesn't understand. And when she tells him, I don't know what this means, he drops it. He relents in a way. And I think it's important to point out this fact because it's like, it appears what she's doing is working. Yeah, he even starts to tell her about how he'll let her go soon. He'll leave her in a place that he chooses. And if she wants to go to the police, you know, she can. But he tells her, if you do so, you'll always be known as the girl who was raped. But it's at this moment that Kara realizes that she's done it. She's gained his trust. He's already giving her the benefit of the doubt, telling her he's going to let her go. And it's only a matter of time until he lets his guard down long enough so that she can finally make her escape. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. It's been about eight hours since 15 year old Kara Robinson was abducted from her friend's home in West Columbia, South Carolina. She's memorized as much information as she can about the apartment she's held captive in and the man who's abducted and assaulted her. 
She's gained his trust by portraying herself as the perfect captive. And as she and her assailant are prepping for bed, she's now planning her escape. As they're getting ready for bed, he tells her that she's going to be with him a few days. And so he's going to give her a Valium for anxiety. And then he forces her to smoke weed with him. Now that puts Kara more or less into a daze. And, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, she's had a pretty stressful day. She's had the day from hell. He puts these furry handcuffs on her wrists and he clamps them to a rope at the head of his bed and uses another rope to tie her right leg to the bed frame at the bottom. Now that's loose enough that she can get some sleep, but tight enough that she can't wriggle out of it. And then he gets in bed next to his victim and they fall asleep. The next morning, Kara wakes up. It is early. She can see behind the blinds, the sun is barely peeking up. The drugs are wearing off and her captor is right next to her, asleep. And she looks at him and she sees that he is breathing low and slow. And she can tell that he's still in a deep sleep. And at this moment, she realizes it is now or never. So she tries to keep her body super, super still, but also work on the restraints at the same time. There's a C-clamp that's connecting her handcuffs to the rope, and it has a little screw. So if she can just get that screw undone, she will be able to reach down and untie her feet. She tries to twist the screw with her fingers, but it is too tight. Her hands are tied so that they're pulled up towards her head just loose enough for her to get her teeth around this screw. So she's twisting it quietly and feels it give way. And she can undo the rest with her fingers. And suddenly, Kara's arms are free. She reaches down with these handcuffed hands and unties the rope around her ankle and slips as quietly as she possibly can off this bed, still handcuffed. So the cuffs he used are fuzzy and they're covered in fabric. So she slips her hands out of the cuff. So she has one hand free and the cuffs are dangling from her wrist and her captor is miraculously still asleep in bed. So she tiptoes as quietly as humanly possible to the living room. She sees the front door is blocked by a vacuum, boxes like the ones she was forced in, and an open closet door. Now, It's one of those metal accordion ones, so she knows that as soon as she moves it to open the door, it's going to make a loud sound that will most definitely wake her captor. Right. So the first thing she does is move anything that she's going to be able to move quietly, right? She takes the vacuum and the boxes and gets them out of the way without making a sound. I'm sure she's barely breathing at this point. Oh, my God. I mean, can you stand it? No, (laughs) I can't. She really carefully unlocks the deadbolt on the front door and then places one hand on the doorknob and the other hand on the accordion door. So they're both ready to go at the same time. And in one swift, fast as hell movement, she jerks both of them. And that loud metal screeches as she pushes out into the dark morning and runs. The bedroom window is on the same wall as the front door. So she knows that if he wakes up, he sees her 
running from his window. And she knows he has a gun, and he has a strong incentive to stop her escape and to keep her quiet, whatever the cost. And she's booking it. She is running through the parking lot. She's not even looking back. She's just searching for someone, anyone who can help her. All she sees is parked cars, and then suddenly she sees it. There is a car driving down the road. She runs into the street and waves her hands in front of this car. It stops and she runs over to the driver's window with this fuzzy handcuff hanging off her wrist and there's two guys inside looking at her just stunned. And she tells them she has been kidnapped, that her abductor is up in that apartment and she points to it and tells them, remember that apartment. Kara has now been missing for 18 hours, and the two men drive her to the Richland County Sheriff substation, and she walks into the deputy sheriff's office with a glazed look on her face and that handcuff hanging from her wrist. She tells a deputy, I'm Kara Robinson. I've been kidnapped, and he hasn't heard of her. He doesn't know her at all. Not a word of her disappearance made it to the station because she's just listed as a runaway. So at first, this deputy doesn't believe her story, which is just insanity. Like, I mean, in walks a 15-year-old girl with a handcuff on her wrist. She has just been through literal hell and she's escaped on her own. And you're like, hmm, I don't know. Yeah, she's pretty frustrated, I think, at this uh, receipt. She's been very patient, and she did everything right with no outside help or intervention. And now she's finally safe. She's come to tell the police what transpired, and they're kind of treating her like a liar. Luckily, the police do have a record of her missing persons case. So whether they believe her, you know, tale of these events or not, they do call her mother. Kara can hear her on the line when they tell her that her daughter has been found. And I mean, imagine being that mom. She says to them, Kara, you have Kara. And a wave of emotion hits Kara when she hears this. She's going to get to see her family again. And she gets on the phone and she says, Mama, come get me. And her mom tells her, I'll be right there. I can't. Yeah, everyone do an exhale together. I know. It's like mother, daughter, reunite. Kara is safe. And while Kara is waiting for her mom to come and get her, her story reaches up the chain of command to the sheriff. And unlike the deputy, he takes her story very, very seriously. And he knows that right now Kara's memory is as strong as it will ever be. And they want to catch the monster that did this to her, and they need to act now. So The two men who brought Kara to the police tell them the apartment complex that they picked her up from, but they can't remember the exact number of the apartment. Um, So the sheriff has to enlist Kara to help them locate it. And Kara, as brave as she is, agrees. Oh, really? I mean, thanks, guys, for helping Kara, these two men that picked her up. But you guys You had one job. You had one job. (laughs) We got to leave it all up to Kara again. 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 Memorizing numbers on plastic bins. She knows her rapist, dentist. Look, she was a little busy running for her life to take a look at the apartment number. I mean, in their defense, they believed Kara more than that deputy did. They brought her to the police station and ID'd the name of the apartment complex. 
But now, Kara has to fill in the gaps herself. So Kara gets in the car with the police, and she returns to the complex that she just escaped from, and they drive her around just to spark Kara's memory. But it's one of those apartment complexes where everything looks the exact same. Every door, every entrance, every building. So there's no way she can really know which exact apartment she escaped. And then they spot a property manager on one of those little golf carts. So police stop him and Kara gives him every detail she can remember. Can you imagine being the property manager in this exact moment? You're like driving around in your golf cart, like fixing drains. And a girl is like, hey, I was just held captive here. Here's all the information I have. Yeah. Which one of your tenants did this to me? Which one of your tenants who you've like for sure unclogged their drain did this to me? She tells them they're looking for a middle-aged man with exotic pets. He drives a green Trans Am and he likely has a girlfriend or a wife or someone with red hair. And this guy's like, bingo. I totally know who that is. The apartment you're looking for is apartment 301. Meanwhile, back at the police station, Kara's parents walk through the front door. They are desperate to see their little girl again. And then Kara isn't there. Oh Can my you God. Imagine. No. No. Oh, getting that call that you can go get your daughter and then you show up and she's gone because she has to be a policeman today. (laughs) She has to be a policeman today. Well, they don't even know that, Quinn. I mean, listen, not only has the police been like, eh, she's a runaway. Then they're like, we have her. And then she's not there. They've just endured 18 hours of hell. And now they just want to see their daughter. And listen, I'm just going to say, we need more women up in that police department because I got to say, sounds like a real lack of emotional intelligence happening because for sure, just as Kara's mom and dad are about to snap, they're about to like call the manager. It's going to be a whole thing. Their brave 15-year-old daughter, Kara Robinson, walks through those doors and they just burst into tears. They finally get to see and hold their daughter. And from there, they take her over to the hospital to get a sexual assault screening. And when the doctor asks Kara to explain what her rapist did to her, she asks her mom to leave the room, which I just, I feel like as a mom, that would be so hard that she's sort of protecting her or ashamed at anything that comes with that. She recounts for this doctor her assault, completely devoid of emotion. Her body will not let her cry anymore. It's like it's protecting her from reliving this painful memory of the past 24 hours. And more than anything, Kara just wants to go home. She wants to be in her own bed. She wants her life to go back to what it was before. She just wants to move forward with her life. But her life is changed, you know? I mean, her parents and loved ones can tell that she's different. I mean, how can you not be? I mean, she used to be more affectionate, and now she's closed off. She would call her dad, Daddy, and now she calls him Dad. And this, it just feels like this man took so much from her. Right. And as much as Kara really wants life to go back to normal, her part in this story isn't over yet. Back at the apartment complex, the police are getting ready to enter apartment 
301, but they know that the man inside likely could be armed. They've been told he had a gun. They have to be ready for anything. So they knock on the door and wait. No answer. They use the key that was given to them by management, and they quietly enter this apartment, and no one is home. The apartment is just how Kara described it. There's animal cages against the wall. In fact, let's count the animals. Five birds, five hermit crabs, two hamsters, a guinea pig, and a fish. It's the five hermit crabs for me. Disgusting. But before they can do a search of the apartment, they have to get a warrant. And for that, they need a positive ID. So the police create a photo lineup for Kara to look through and see if they can get her to identify her captor. She looks through the photos and boom, immediately she recognizes him. That is the guy. Richard Mark Ivanitz. So they put out a bolo for Ivanitz. Wherever he's running, they are going to find him. Police head back to his apartment with a warrant and they conduct a proper search for evidence. They discover Ivanitz is married and lives with his wife at the apartment, just as Kara suspected. And apparently, his wife and mother are out of town on a trip to Disney World, totally unaware of what their son and husband has been up to. The dichotomy of it, that they're at Disney World and this is what he's putting a child through, disgusts me. And that call that Richard Mark Ivanitz made while Kara was stuffed in that bin was to his wife. He spoke to his wife while he held a 15-year-old girl captive. It just, it's nauseating. The police in the apartment, they find the gun, they find sex toys, they find the C-clamp and rope that was used to tie Kara to the bed. They also find a locked trunk. And armed with their warrant, they're able to crack it open, and what they find inside disturbs them. There are newspaper clippings of three other missing girls from Spotsylvania, Virginia. All of their cases? Cold. Six years earlier, in 1996, 16-year-old Sophia Silva was abducted off her front porch. And at first, she was reported as a runaway. Sound familiar? Five weeks later, she was found raped and murdered. And in 1997, just seven months after Sophia Silva was abducted, 15-year-old Kristen Lisk and her sister, 12-year-old Katie Lisk, were abducted from their front yard. And five days later, they were both found submerged in a river just 40 miles from their home. And these cold cases have a $150,000 reward out for information about their murders. And now the police are realizing Kara didn't just escape the hands of a sick pedophile. She escaped from a serial killer. In the apartment and in his car, police find hairs and fingerprints that match Sophia Silva and Kristen and Katie Lisk. This is a man who has done this before and will do it again. And what's more shocking is this monster was never suspected in the other murders. He was completely off their radar. They had thousands of leads, and he was not listed in any of them. So without Kara, his latest victim, nobody would have known who he really is. But now they have to find him. 
The police reach out to Ivanit's family to try to locate him and start to build a profile of their perp. And his family is shocked. I mean, they had no idea. His sister tells the police that she just actually recently spoke to him on the phone. He apparently called her to tell her that he is on the run and that he's done terrible things and that currently he's driving a Ford Escort and hiding out in a hotel in South Carolina. Which, by the way, it's like... Thanks for those extra details because the police are like perfect and they follow that lead to that exact hotel and kick down the door. The bummer of it is, is that he's already gone. Maybe his sister felt bad about telling all those Ratting him out? Yeah. Well, either way, somebody tipped him off because he's out of there. And, or, you know, maybe he was actually planting false information with her. Who knows? Mark Richard Ivanitz is on the road. And according to his family, he's gone south from Georgia to Florida. This man does sound like he belongs in Florida. While on the run, he is calling them to confess his crimes. According to the Washington Post, Ivanitz confesses to his family that he killed someone and that he's committed more crimes than he can remember. Based on the sparse details he gives, it seems like he's not talking about the victims the police already know about. There might be more. But they can't even process that at this point because they just have to find him. And they get another tip from Ivanit's other sister that he's planning to meet her at an IHOP in Orlando. This man does not deserve the International House of Pancakes, to say the least. But the police set up a trap at the IHOP and they wait for Ivanit's Ford Escort to pull into the parking lot. But he sees them and he immediately takes off. And a high-speed chase ensues on the interstate. He goes up to 120 miles per hour to evade the police. But listen, honestly, I don't know who thinks they can just escape the police. Like, whenever I see a car chase, I'm always just surprised at, like, what are you thinking is going to happen? You know, they have cars, they have helicopters. But he's at the end of the rope. He is just running to get away. Police in Sarasota lay spike strips across the road, and these pop his tires. His car is immobilized. Canine units come out of their police vans and approach his car, and as the dogs are coming after him, he pulls a gun, and as quickly as the chase begins, it ends. Because like the sick, twisted coward he is, Mark Richard Ivanitz takes his own life. When Kara finds out that he kills himself, she's pissed. She's angry. I mean, how could she not be? This coward just took the easy way out. He won't have to face the consequences of his actions. She won't get her day in court. And she wanted to look him in the eyes and tell him that picking her that day was the worst mistake he ever made. And that it was because of her that he was going to go away and be put in jail for the rest of his life. And sadly, Kara does not get that moment. But because of Kara, police are able to close the cases of Sophia Silva, Kristen Lisk, and Katie Lisk. Kara goes on to meet the families of these girls, and that's really important to her because it gives her survival a purpose because of her these families can finally have some closure, or at the very least, answers. And Kara's personal journey is not over after her escape. Her healing will take years. 
But in this situation, she's also developed a wonderful relationship with the local sheriff who believed her. And he actually encourages her to get involved and he takes her under his wing. And in 2003, just a year after her escape, she starts working at the Richland Sheriff's Department in victim services and in the DNA lab. She works there all through high school and all through college. Yeah, and after she graduates, she actually goes to the police academy. So she has the training to protect more kids. And while in class there, the teacher starts presenting a case, Sophia Silva's image flashes onto the screen and then Kara sees her own face and hears her story retold to future police officers. And at first, it freaks her out. You know, she's panicking. She doesn't want her history to follow her everywhere she goes. She doesn't want it here. But she also can't change the past and it's part of what made her who she is. So after class, she ends up deciding to tell the teacher that she is Kara from that case. I can't even imagine how that teacher must have felt. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I'm meeting you. And Kara graduates, and she is the only woman in her class to graduate from the South Carolina Criminal Justice Academy that year. And at graduation, she accepts an award for courage and bravery to a standing ovation from her fellow graduates and teachers and friends and family. She becomes a school resource officer and she investigates sexual assault and child abuse cases and she helps survivors cope with their trauma. She also gets married, becoming Kara Robinson Chamberlain, and she has two kids with her husband. She still struggles with overcoming the repercussions of her own trauma after years of working for the police, she decides to leave her job. It takes Kara 15 years to really confront her trauma. She decides she has to face it head on and that it's okay for her to feel her feelings. And that feelings don't make you weaker. It's actually the opposite. There is strength in feeling. Kara uses her insight to become a motivational speaker, an author, and social media influencer. She also uses her TikTok to tell her story in her own words, and she uses that platform to help others. And her message to kids everywhere is that trauma doesn't make you stronger. Healing makes you stronger. She's not a victim. That would give her rapist too much credit. She's the one who saved herself. She's the one who turned her nightmare into something that helps others. She's a survivor. So I just want to take a moment to talk about the young women, well, the children, really, that did not survive this man. Sophia Silva was 16 years old, and she wanted to go to cosmetology school. And Richard Ivanitz took her from her family's doorstep while she was doing homework. Her sister was right inside at the time and heard nothing. 15-year-old Kristen Lisk was a soccer player and was just finishing her freshman year of high school. And her 12-year-old sister, Katie, liked playing the clarinet and drawing. Ivanitz took them from their front yard, and blue acrylic fibers from those fuzzy handcuffs were found on all three of these young girls who likely did everything they could to get away but didn't. And sadly, 
it's very likely from the things that he said to his family members that he killed more women. We don't know. There have been theories floating around um, a lot of cold cases that people are saying he lived here at this time. It, In some ways, it matches his M.O. There are theories out there that he may be the Route 29 stalker, which would mean he was responsible for many, many more rapes and murders. What we do know is that he had notes on several young girls, what they were doing, where they were going, what their names were, where they lived. He was basically making a wish list. This guy was not going to stop. In fact, Kara wasn't even his intended victim that day. He wanted to victimize another girl, but she happened to not follow her routine that day. But he had made up his mind he was going to take somebody, and that ended up being Kara, which might have been why he was asking her all those questions. Most girls he had compiled all these notes on, and I think Kara, it was a case of he saw her and decided to take her, so he didn't have all those notes. You know, all we can do at this point is mourn the loss of those who were taken, be very grateful, especially to Kara, that he will have no more victims, and celebrate the bravery of this woman who survived. I think it's also worth noting, I don't know if you remember, but I had mentioned that the $150,000 reward for those missing, for those cold cases. And Kara, they they all decided that Kara was the one most worthy to get that reward, and she got that reward. And we shared this story today because it's just an incredible story of survival, resilience, and determination. You know, and at 15 years old, Kara did the unimaginable and escaped and stopped a serial killer. And I also want to highlight that you can hear the story told directly from Kara. She's an incredible woman and she's so generous in how she offers up her story and her journey through self-care. And so I recommend you please follow her on TikTok or on Instagram at Kara Robinson Chamberlain and just, you know, listen to survivors and believe survivors and thank them when they decide to tell their story. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. The Oxygen documentary, Escaping Captivity, The Kara Robinson Story, and Kara's firsthand story as told through her TikTok account at Kara Robinson Chamberlain. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us, Quinlan Posner and Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. 
Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.